All right, welcome back, everybody, to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today uh, we're doing our uh, first part uh, of a series. It's going to be a three-part series on prevent plant and prevent harvest acres. And uh, this first part here today, we've got with us uh, special guest Liz Stahl. Greetings. And uh, we've got also with us special guest uh, Jared Goplin. Good to be with you. And the, the reason Brad and I uh, reached out to, to Liz and Jared is that they reside in areas of the state that were probably most adversely impacted with some of the spring planting conditions last season and, uh, and had some of the more significant acreages of uh, prevent plant acres. And uh, so we wanted to have them on to kind of give us a, you know, kind of break down the situation for Jared. Uh, he's more in the west central part of the state, uh, bleeding over into southwest. And then Liz is... Uh, pretty much solidly in the southern southwestern part of Minnesota. And so we thought they could give us a, a little bit of an update on, on what the situation was last year, uh, as well as then we'll cover some of the, the tips and, and topics we need to cover with uh, regards to prevent plant acres. So I don't know, uh, do we want to start off with Liz? Do you want to give us a little situation uh, update as far as kind of what was your experience last spring and, and how that worked out in terms of prevent plant acres? Sure, yeah. When you look at, uh, of course, last year, very challenging year. Um, just don't need to remind everybody, I guess, that went through it. But, you know, certainly we had rainfall just never seemed to let up. And, uh, you know, the areas really hit when you look back now at the reports uh, in southwestern Minnesota, of course. Um, you know, most counties in that area are in the top counties when we look at number of prevent plant acres uh, statewide. And, and of course, when we look at Minnesota as a state, you know, corn was the most affected. Um, we were actually number three in the nation for amount of prevent plant acres. And of course, that's again statewide. But those acres, again, really concentrated in that southwestern, west central area. Um, and, you know, we also had a number of acres that went prevent plant for soybeans uh, as well. But I'd say, you know, predominantly a lot more challenges with the corn just because, you know, people couldn't get out. Um, a lot of people didn't plant their first corn till they were into June, you know, which that's just typically unheard of. So, um, you know, they were able finally to get in around June. And then, you know, we did have a lot of uh, late planted soybeans at that point in time, too. But, but yeah, it's certainly challenging year now, you know, like, like you're saying, what we do with those acres, that's, that's something to look ahead here now to 2020. So Liz, not to, not to throw you under the bus here or not, but the, uh, um, you were working with a, some survey information about prevent plant acres or, or at least late planted acres, I guess, with the survey was more about. And just kind of curious, uh, you know, I've heard rumors or rumblings about folks that did end up in these situations where they were planting kind of kind of really pretty late for corn. And uh, did you get a feel for, you know, what kind of results were people getting? Was it a mixed bag or, or was it pretty negative? Yeah, you know, and that's something we're, we're working through all that information. And yeah, I got to say, hey, I really appreciate everybody who did reply to that survey. We got a lot of responses. And again, that was uh, very useful information. We're working through that. But it's just been interesting in glancing through the data, for example. Um, I know early on there was a little window in some counties where people could get in in April. And, you know, this I'd say more like more of the counties, more south central. And then it got snowed on. 
you know, and it's been interesting looking at some of those comments that some of those areas, actually that was like their best corn that they had, you know, for last year. Uh, whereas if people planted and then got a couple inches of cold rain, um, those they had more issues. Um, and then some other comments just gleaning from that, uh, people that, you know, planted well into June, you know, again, just basing off the comments, some people said, I, I'll never plant corn again in June. And I hope that I write this down to remind myself to not do this again. You know, it, but it really depended, you know, what maturity did they plant? Were they able to get early maturity? You know, what were the traits of that hybrid? Um, you know, kind of a wide range, but there was a lot of issues uh, with that later planted corn and really low test weights too, um, and, and high moisture. So, that was a, a big challenge. We certainly didn't have a year that really helped us out with really late planted corn. You know, we, it, it just didn't dry down. A lot of that corn came in at 20 plus percent moisture and at harvest time. So, you know, that's, that's a challenge to deal with. And, and a lot of that corn still was stored wet over winter. Um, so that poses some challenges this spring too, you know, how to, how to handle that. So again, a lot, a lot of interesting comments on that, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're working through that information. Hope to get more of that out here in the future. Well, good. We'll be, uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And it sounds like a good topic for a future podcast. So, uh, Jared, uh, kind of moving north up into the more west central part of the state, do you want to kind of paint the picture for us how, how the spring started last year and how things might end it up? Yeah, so like Ryan mentioned, in the west central part of the state, uh, office dot of Morris, which I would say is kind of on the northern fringe of where we had a lot of issues. Um, as you move further south, uh, we also farm down in the Yellow Medicine County area, and I'd say that's kind of where that boundary was, where it went from, uh, you know, kind of bad to, you know, really bad. Uh, right in our, our neck of the woods where we farm and, and further to the south and west, you know, it was, it was over half of the acres, I would estimate, were prevented planted in this area. So, you know, a lot of really wet conditions. A lot of the corn that did get planted, uh, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag on whether or not it turned out well or not. Uh, a lot of the earlier planted corn in April actually did a lot better. So even if it was planted into marginal conditions, uh, it tended to fare a little bit better. Uh, and, and I have worked with Liz on the survey you talked about a little bit ago, and, and it has just been all over the board. Um, you know, kind of the, the main kind of blip in that kind of data is, is that mid-March, or uh, sorry, that mid-May uh, timing where we got that really cold rain. I think it was like May, was it like 20th or something like that? And that's kind of where the blip goes where, where some people were really, really affected by that. You know, there's some really low corn yields in that kind of blip. Uh, but overall, a lot of prevent plant acres. Um, a lot of guys did get cover crops planted eventually. You know, ended up getting to be late, you know, late July into August in a lot of cases. Some guys didn't get any, uh, any, any crops planted for a cover crop just because it got to be a, be a struggle there. But uh, certainly this spring is looking to uh, looking to be a little bit better than what it was last year in terms of field conditions. So I guess, guys, in terms of uh, what did get planted for cover crops, uh, predominantly uh, what mostly got put in, uh, did it grow, and then what are the, some of the management implications uh, coming into this planting season, uh, depending on what, the, what kind of condition the field was left in uh, last fall? Well, and I don't know if you want to, I, I can take a stab at that first year, Jared, if you want. But, um, you know, one thing was a challenge was just availability of cover crops, too. And, of course, people looking at the balance sheet, you know, people weren't looking for real expensive mixes uh, either at that point. So it's kind of what they could get their hands on. I, I know there was a lot of oats that went out, you know, cereal rye is always one, too. But 
Um, we had people putting out TAF. Um, just, again, it was a lot of different things. Uh, I don't know, Jared, what, what you had heard too. And, you know, there's some broadleaf cover crops too, but availability was a real challenge last year just because of, of so much demand. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of talk of bin run oats uh, last summer. You know, so in terms of weed management this year, you know, I know there had been some, some maybe some questionable decisions by, by a few people at least in terms of putting in some bin run oats that might have had some weed weed seed issues. But I'd say there was a lot of small grains, you know, obviously oats and, and wheat even. Uh, seed is pretty cheap. It's easy to handle. People, uh, you know, are a little more used to handling that compared to some of the smaller seeded um, brassicas and different things. But I'd say, you know, in terms of plant uh, species planted, it was really all over the board. A lot of the guys with livestock put in more of the sorghums or sorghum sedan grass types, you know, trying to get some biomass, maybe even some corn in some select situations. Uh, but otherwise, a lot of uh, kind of that oats, peas, or I should say oats, brassica mix uh, is what, what ended up going in on a lot of acres, I think, uh, where people weren't looking to graze it or harvest it. And, uh, you know, certainly with those brassicas, I mentioned it earlier before we started the recording, but... Um, you know, I have seen a number of those brassicas make it through the winter. You know, they are pretty cold hardy, and uh, there are some that are still growing this spring, which certainly from a weed management perspective could uh, could be challenging if they end up bolting and producing seed this year. So certainly something to keep an eye on if you have places that, you know, caught a lot of snow or, or were able to give those uh, those cover crops a chance to make it through the winter. Well, that, and that was kind of my follow-up question then, uh, the extent to which you guys have had a chance to realize that uh, we're under unique circumstances now where we're not doing a ton of driving around like we might have uh, under other circumstances, but to kind of see uh, whether we've got uh, stuff that was planted last year in those acres that's now alive and growing and needs to be dealt with, or uh, the extent to which it's uh, just sort of a a neutral uh, condition, not dissimilar to maybe a soybean uh, field that was just not tilled in the fall. Yeah, and just, you're right. I mean, of course, we're not driving around like we normally would be at this time, but I the limited that I have been able to, I mean, there's fields I can see where uh, they planted. I, I'm going to guess, make a pretty safe guess, a lot of this was probably cereal rye uh, that overwintered, and you can see that coming up. And, and that's the thing, you know, depending what they plan to plant this year, uh, you really want to make sure you've got a termination plan in place for that. You know, our standard recommendation is to terminate that cereal rye about 10 to 14 days before you plant your cash crop. Uh, you just want to help prevent, you know, that green bridge uh, to diseases and insects, you know, that potential. Plus, um, you know, if you don't get it terminated in time, I know a lot of people are interested in planting green, for example, whereas, you know, you plant that cover crop, uh, either the same day that you terminate the cover crop, um, I, I mean, you plant your cash crop the same day you terminate that cover crop or plan to terminate the cover crop right after, well, then you run that risk of, you know, what if you can't get back in there to, to terminate that cover crop? Then you could look at some yield impacts too, just due to competition. Uh, again, so it's all about managing risk. Um, and again, just kind of our lowest risk recommendation would be to try to terminate the cover crop about 10 to 14 days prior to planting your cash crop. I know people push that more with soybeans. We tend to see less issues, but that doesn't mean there's no issues either. Um, but again, that's kind of just a general recommendation we have. So Jared, back to your situation up there. Uh, I, I do know uh, there were some emergency forages planted. They're one of the big popular uh, species that folks were planting was some millet and uh, wasn't there was a detection there then uh, in one of those farms uh, for Palmer amaranth up in West Central, wasn't there? 
Yeah, that was in uh, Lincoln County. We had a confirmed case of a palm amaranth introduction with a with a, a proso millet planting. Oh, um, you know, of course, with a lot of those, um, you know, those warm season crops, you know, seed production typically occurs further south, maybe Nebraska or even Texas in some cases, where palmer is, you know, of course, a lot more prevalent down there. So they're always kind of a little bit more on a high watch, I would say. You know, just something to keep an eye open. Surprisingly, with all the prevent plant acres, you know, it's really surprising we only found one confirmed case. So that is one of the things I'm reminding people to do this year is to, you know, double and triple check some of those prevent plant fields, especially if you had some warm season crops out there like the sorghums or millets, you know, because, you know, there, there certainly is some potential to get some Palmer uh, introductions with those, but at least something to keep an eye out this year. Certainly. That's uh, that's a good pointer, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, sp- thinking back to some of our experience in Southeast, we had a big bad year in 2013 with a uh, prevent plant and a really late start to the season. And a lot of those acres got, uh, um, if they did get covers on uh, oats or wheat, a uh, uh, situation like that. And uh, kind of when, when you get a crop like that, that's going to winter terminate, uh, you know, realistically uh, some of my experience or at least the anecdotal from talking to the folks you can get away with some lighter tillage then in spring before you work in the planting season i don't know do, do you guys uh, have a feel for how that might work out uh, in your part of the state yeah i'm i guess speaking from firsthand experience here in the last few days uh, we have worked up a, a little bit of the cover crop and you know last year was one of the wetter areas of a field and you know, amazing how much better it did dry out with having something growing out there. I know one of the observations I've heard from from other neighbors so far is, you know, areas they didn't get something planted just have been slow to dry out. Might look dry on the surface, but it's really not working up as nice as they might have expected in some cases. Uh, So, you know, those cover crop areas, you know, they really have worked up pretty well, even though they were quite wet last year. But, you know, of course, the recent dry weather has helped uh, helped that along as well. Yeah, and depending what you planted too, uh, you may not have a lot of that residue remaining, you know, if it did winter kill. Um, and, and that's the thing, you know, a lot of our planters can plant just fine into higher residue conditions. You just want to make sure you're, you know, checking things out after, you know, once you get into the field and make sure you're getting that good seed to soil contact, good seeding depth. Uh, but again, uh, you know, and residue managers, making sure those are set right if you do have those on your planter. Uh, but again, a lot of our planters can handle planting in a little higher residue situation. Yeah, just make sure you're uh, keeping an eye on things in case you do plug up and look back every once in a while so you don't end up with a big nasty mark for too long. But uh, but certainly, I'd, I'd agree with you guys. My, my From my experience, we've had pretty pretty good luck with some of those things that winter terminate. And I think oftentimes people are, if they're planting those covers, they're... they're they end up being a little too concerned with either uh, terminating it in fall or uh, trying to do something a little too aggressive in spring. And I, I totally agree with you that we can oftentimes get away with some pretty light management on those. Um, other things, uh, Liz, I know you wrote an article here a while back. Uh, are there a couple other things you might want to mention? Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about cover crop management here, but, you know, unfortunately, there were a lot of acres where people just were never able to get into either. So nothing was planted. Um, they, some of these areas, people might have been able to keep doing tillage or at least get tillage done later on. 
Um, so those areas, we might have had nothing growing. That's where, you know, fallow syndrome can be a concern. Again, you know, it's just that good fungi in the soil. It needs living plant roots to survive, and that helps with uptake of nutrients like phosphorus and zinc. Um, so if you're planning to plant corn into those areas, you know, make sure you're managing for fallow syndrome, like, you know, banding uh, some phosphorus here at planting. Um, otherwise, uh, if you um, weren't able to get out there again to some of these areas, didn't have a cover crop, some of those areas just, you know, weed, weeds went to town, you know, and, and that's where you could have a really high seed bank uh, as well now too. So that's something to really make sure uh, you're aggressively managing for weeds this year and, and in the future. Um, you know, if they did go to seed, make sure you're using that full rate of a pre-emergence herbicide, you, you know, and uh, you'll probably have to come back. You know, water hemp's one of our key weeds in this, in this whole region. Um, and so that's something that emerges longer over the season. Um, so again, layering a pre-emergence herbicide, so like putting one down at planting and then coming back about 30 days after planting. Um, again, and, you know, watch your labels as to what, what type of product you can apply, but that would be a really good recommendation for these areas too. Yeah, that's a good point, Liz. And I know some of the actually not prevent plant situations, but some of the trials we've done with regulated materials where they need to go through a crop destruct uh, process before flowering. Uh, I know in some of those situations, then we'll follow up with, uh, depending on the protocol, you can follow up with some cover crops. And oftentimes you're planting right at that time when water hemp starts to emerge. And, um, you know, water hemp will come along right with that cover crop that you've seeded and, and, uh, will go to seed and, and be in there. Obviously it's, it's a much more ideal situation in terms of a weed management that you you've got to cover out there. You've got other plants at a pretty high density to kind of be competitive with, with the water hemp and hopefully reduce some of the seed production, but something to be aware of that, that if we do get those later planted, um, you know, covers on, on certain acres that, uh, that if water hemp's a major weed issue for you, uh, there's a good likelihood that it's going to emerge with your cover crop and be out there. Uh, it's not going to be unimpeded, so it, it won't have as probably as much uh, seed production, I would guess, as, as if it was there and just you know in a weedy uh, mess. But something to be aware of, it's probably going to be at uh, a little bit higher densities this year, and, and it might be something to really kind of pay attention to. Well, you know, one thing uh, just made me think of this too when Jared was talking about some of the options that we planted. There was a really neat little project we did at Lamberton with Axel uh, Garcia there too. And we, uh, just because of the situation, and we didn't have a lot of information about some of these, you know, warmer season grasses planted in July, you know, so we did run a little trial last year. We're hoping to repeat the that this year again, and we'll get some more information out about that as well. But you know, again, hopefully we don't have a repeat of prevent plant this year or any time in the near future, but likely there's always some area that gets hit up with this issue, you know, as we, you know, look ahead. And so again, we'll have some more information than, that, you know, base, base some recommendations off of uh, due to that, that work. Yeah. And uh, another good point, Liz, that project that we're involved with the three site project, looking at uh, the weed suppressive nature of certain cover crops, it's going to be kind of fun to watch that uh, as we move into spring here and see how, you know, get some firsthand knowledge on, really side-by-side -side, small plot uh, comparisons on how these different strategies might uh, play a role in, in creating some weed suppressive conditions and, and kind of work as one of our weed management tools. So, so looking forward to some of that work.
That's that's right. Yeah, we're looking at some termination timing work as well too. Because again, I know that 10 to 14 days before you plant the cash crop, that doesn't typically allow very much growth of the cover crop. And I know people are trying a lot more planting green, but again, you know, we're trying to look at that risk management um, and, and just seeing again, if we can kind of tweak that window a little bit more here, uh, that would be great. Because the longer you can let that cover crop out there, the more potentially have to suppress weeds with that cover crop. Excellent. See, so I guess one more thing I'm kind of thinking about uh, last week here, um, April 15th, uh, we had some overnight low temperatures that were ab ab abnormally low, I guess. Uh, uh, Jared, I'm thinking about you here. Uh, we had uh, significant snow cover in, in, in pretty big areas of southeastern Minnesota. Uh, but there were areas of the state that didn't have uh, very significant snow cover at that point in time. And we, I know locally we saw a low overnight low temperature of 8 degrees Fahrenheit, which is very, very low. And uh, preceding that, though, we had had some, some fairly sunny and warm conditions. And uh, some of our alfalfa had started to break dormancy. And uh, uh, we kind of ended up in a situation where... Uh, some of those crowns had very low or no snow cover and uh, ended up with some really pretty cold conditions. And so, I don't know, Jared, if you wanted to speak to that a little bit here. Or... Yeah, sure. We had uh, Dave and Nikolai and I had put out a crop news, I think that was last week on the, on this topic. And of course, that was a little bit on the early side to really see how uh, how much frost injury or cold injury might have happened for this uh, these, alfalfa, uh, these alfalfa stands. I guess some of that could apply to your, you know, any winter cereal cover crops that you might have planted too, like winter wheat or rye. But, you know, for the most part, regardless of the crop, you know, alfalfa included, when they are small, they're pretty cold hardy. You know, if they haven't fully broken dormancy yet, they can usually withstand, you know, some cold temperatures, especially for short periods of time. You know, I was expecting to hear more, you know, get, like you said, you know, eight, nine degrees is pretty darn cold. Um, you know, we would expect to see probably a little bit more um, injury, but so far we really haven't heard much. Uh, the fields I've been in, you know, it wasn't quite that cold, maybe around 15 degrees or so is all, but uh, with some windier conditions. But, you know, those plants were still small, two to three inches of, of growth this spring. And, uh, you know, the soil conditions, they were still on the wetter side. So I think overall the, the temperature near that soil surface maybe didn't quite get to that, uh, that eight, nine degrees uh, temperature. So, so far, for the most part, things look like they've fared pretty well. Just a few of uh, kind of dinged uh, trifoliates on the top there that had some frost injury. But... Uh, for the most part, those uh, axillary buds lower down on the leaves were just fine. They should should have uh, resumed growth by now, I think, already. So, And if nothing else, the crown buds should have still survived. So your alfalfa stand might be a little bit delayed, but it should still recover. Well, good to hear that. I know I, our, our cover crop project I was mentioning earlier that Liz and I, in cooperation with several other people, have uh, uh, the site in Rochester actually had probably 10 inches of snow on it when we had that cold temperature. So I'm, I'm fairly certain all those uh, uh, would have survived uh, and overwintered uh, even with that late wintery condition uh, this year. So going to plan on getting out uh, to that project uh, midweek sometime and uh, take a look and see, see how things are growing. All right. Anything else you guys can think that uh, we need to discuss today? I think that pretty well hits, uh, hits all the main points for me anyway. I think so. All right, excellent. So uh, I do want to make mention here that this is the first part of a three-part series. The next part uh, or segment we're going to be having here is with Lindsay Pease, kind of giving us the Northwestern perspective. 
Uh, not so much on uh, delayed planting and prevent plant, but some of the harvest issues they had with sugar beets and kind of talking about their situation in the north. Uh, and then finally, Dan Kaiser is going to be on to kind of talk about some of the, the nutrient management perspective uh, with with some of these uh, scenarios, I guess. And so that'll be the final part of this uh, broadcast. This is part two on our series in Prevent Plant and Unharvested Acres. And today we've got with us our nutrient management specialist, and soil scientist from Crookston, Minnesota, uh, Lindsay Pease. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. We're recording this via distance, and I'm kind of uh, curious, Lindsay, how has the spring weather been like up in Crookston in the Red River Valley? You know, we are slowly getting out of the deep freeze here today. We actually have a beautiful 50 degree day, uh, but actually the soils are all still frozen uh, at the kind of shallower depths, uh, but the Red River has crested and uh, things are looking up. We've had some unseasonably cool weather here in uh, the southeast part of the state in, in Rochester. We had that big storm. Uh, two weekends ago, uh, followed up by some abnormally seasonally cool weather, uh, including one night, uh, the 15th there, that we were low temperature of 8 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, similarly similarly in this area, actually there was a fair amount of field work happened uh, last week. Uh, towards the end of the week, things got uh, fit and there was a lot of fertilizer went on. I saw no tillage happen, uh, but uh, a lot of anhydrous was moving. Uh, then we got the snowstorm, and now this week things are sitting still. But based on the forecast, uh, I would anticipate uh, next week things are going to get rolling real fast. Yeah, I think that's probably similar up here, too. I was talking with some guys yesterday, and um, a few of the folks near Crookston think they might be able to get out in the next week or two. Um, but as you get further north, they're thinking maybe they're still three or four weeks out, so depending on what they're planning. But that's pretty typical for that part of the state, too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one guy mentioned he thought they'd only be about a week to 10 days behind. So not not too, not too, not too bad. So reflecting back on last uh, year, things were uh, pretty difficult in the spring. So to get things planted and, and get some of that done. But more importantly, up there in the northwest part of the state, uh, a number of acres were passed by with harvest, in particular the sugar beets. Uh, maybe you could fill us in on that situation. Yeah. So Last year was obviously a memorable year for a lot of people, uh, but we actually started off the year pretty good. Uh, I mean, we were wet. We were wet early, but it dried out kind of that middle part of the season. So a lot of people got planted. Um, so we had fewer prevent plant acres than in other parts of the state because we were able to dodge quite a few of the big rainstorms that hit like West Central, Southwest Minnesota. Our big problem really started to happen um, as we got into uh, September and October. It just would not stop raining. We actually had the wettest fall on record, um, and that's kind of looking back at the records we have at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center, and those go back to the 1800s, and this was absolutely the wettest fall on record. So um, so a lot of things didn't get harvested. There was a lot of corn left. Uh, people got their, got their wheat off. People got soybeans off, but, but corn was left uh, harvested really until just about a month ago. Um, and, and, you know, more than half the beet acres just never got harvested. So it was a tough, tough fall. No, I was just going to say, you know, we, we were up in that part of the, uh, stay in your part of the state, uh, this winter to do 
uh, Nitrogen Smart, which ended up uh, getting canceled because of uh, Blizzard. But uh, I was really surprised at the amount of unharvested corn uh, uh, when you went from Detroit Lakes to uh, to Crookston. And so uh, you're saying that most of that did get harvested, uh, uh, th- that there was a window here in the last uh, month or so with the snow gone and it's still being uh, frozen soils that mostly got taken care of. Yeah, you know, a lot of corn, I'm trying to think, maybe it was kind of towards the beginning of March, we started to see a lot of people start combining and, uh, you know, tend like a little bit cautiously, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the ground really just started to thaw here in the past, you know, few weeks. So, so there was a window where it was, the snow's been melted, but um, kind of intermittent. And, and so, yeah, a lot of that corn did get, get taken off. So as far as the sugar beet acreage that was bypassed as far as harvest, are there things that growers are going to need to consider as they move into this season? Yeah, those unharvested beet acres are going to be they're going to be a headache. They're going to require a little bit more thought and management. Uh, when you get into the spring. Uh, one of the things they recommend with unharvested beets is uh, is delaying the tillage uh, until the spring, which, you know, since nobody could get out and do anything in the fall, that's not really an issue. So, um, but, but one of the big things to keep in mind, at least from a management perspective and from a fertility perspective, is that as the beets decompose in the soil, they're going to tie up just a little bit of nitrogen. So when you're looking at, you know, your, this year's crop, if it's, if it's corn, if it's, um, wheat, uh, or other small grains, you probably want to apply, we're kind of estimating maybe about 30 to 40 extra pounds of nitrogen per acre. And that's just an estimate. That's kind of our best guess because as the as the beets decompose, they're gonna start uh, taking up, tying up just a little bit of nitrogen. That microbial activity is gonna use that nitrogen. Um, so you don't wanna short your cash crop because of those decomposing beets. Yeah, I know that question came up when we had the nitrogen conference up in Alexandria, and uh, my uh, my initial uh, thought was that there'd be a credit that the nitrogen in those beets was still out in the field, but uh, uh, not being from the part of the state that grows beets, I guess, and we, we kind of checked signals with John Lamb, who's retired now, but has done our, our beet fertility, or had done our beet fertility work for, for quite a long time, and you know, and he, he alerted me of the fact that, that no, actually immobilization is a big problem in those fields uh, uh, and uh, therefore required a higher rate, not a lower rate, uh, uh, which is good to know because it was counterintuitive to me from my experience. I was thinking of the beets being more uh, uh, similar to like, say, a, a cover crop radish or something like that that really just falls apart. Uh, when springtime comes and that's not an issue but uh, obviously with beets uh, there's a lot more uh, cellulose and tissue that's that's left out there uh, not dissimilar to a corn stalk yeah that's exactly right i mean and, and there were a lot of good looking beets left in the field unfortunately so those those things uh will take up a lot of carbon um the uh, the other thing to keep in mind is um i've i've heard some people talk about you know the herbicide that was used on the beets um because we've been so cold and there's been no microbial activity there may still be some herbicide residue left in the field so you just kind of want to watch that when you're thinking about your next uh crop too is is not getting any carryover uh injury it's it's kind of a minor issue but definitely something to be aware of 
Do you have a feel, uh, Lindsay, for what percentage of the uh, the abandoned beet ground is going to be uh, pointed towards corn uh, versus uh, how many are just going to go grow soybeans out there and then not have to, to worry about the nitrogen issue? Uh, do we have reason to think that there could be a nitrogen issue with, uh, with soybeans out there uh, or just a growth issue with soybeans uh, following something like that? I know uh, uh, corn is fairly well adapted to dealing with uh, high residue um beans can be a kind of a funny uh funny uh, crop uh, sometimes yeah you know i'm not sure i actually don't know what kind of percentage of guys are gonna go beans versus corn because there's trade-offs right because if you're gonna do corn um you got to get out right away and with these cold temperatures you know that you guys have at the at the southern part of the state too that's going to make it really tricky to get the corn out in time beans uh you know beans we can wait a few more weeks on so you know there's there's an advantage to being able to wait a little bit more longer for the soil to kind of warm up and and for those beets to start decomposing as far as kind of any idc issues um you know, if those beets, you know, if they initially take up the nitrogen, um, if they release any nitrogen later on, like we were talking about, uh, that could could potentially cause, you know, cause a little bit of, of issues with the soybeans. But again, I think we're kind of looking at that maybe being not not too much worse of an issue. Probably the weather is going to have more of an impact than the beets do on um, on the soybeans. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. Uh, Brad, do you got anything else you want to say today? No, I guess the only other thing would be uh, just relative to some of those uh, unharvested cornfields or the ones that finally got harvested this this spring. I guess uh, uh, from my standpoint, I don't see there being any great challenges uh, with nitrogen management uh, beyond the fact that there's there's, uh, obviously going to be a lot of residue left out there um, I don't know the extent to which we see a lot of corn on corn uh, in that part of the the uh, state. Uh, is it likely that, that, that those fields are going to be rotated to corn, or is that another situation that's probably just going to go to beans? Uh, I know we typically don't grow into go into a small grain following the corn, so I don't think that's an issue. Yeah, I would say uh, the most likely scenario is that corn ground for last year is going to go into beans uh, this year. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of, of corn on corn up here. Not yet, anyway. So that's that's not something we have to worry about as much. Any thought that there's going to be some uh, probably increased uh, stress related to uh, phosphorus availability uh, uh, with, with some of that being tied up in residue? I know some of the high pH soils have issues anyway. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that that we've been recommending to guys is is this is a time when banding that fertilizer, getting it close to the seed is going to be really important if you can apply kind of with the planter at all um, and just kind of get it near the seed. That'll sort of help to keep it away from that residue that's left in the field. Well, thanks, Lindsay. And with that, we're going to move into our third and final segment of this podcast uh, series here. We're going to be visiting with Dan Kaiser about nutrient management issues related to uh, prevent plant and prevent harvest. And uh, uh, thanks again. Thank you. And today we're bringing you part three in our three-part series on uh, prevent plant and unharvested acres. Uh, Today uh, we've got with us uh, Dan Kaiser, our uh, nutrient management specialist from uh, St. Paul, uh, as our guest. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. 
And so uh, Dan is going to, because of his expertise, is going to uh, deal with uh, more of the uh, fertility management issues around some of these uh, um, issues with the prevent plant and things. Um, and so, uh, Dan, did you want to start? Well, we've been getting a few questions related to this. I've had a few news releases out this spring dealing with prevent plant. Um, the first one we started with was dealing with uh, fallow syndrome because this is something that's going to come up particularly questions for the western part of the state where we already have some soils that are low in phosphorus is do we need to be really focused on our in-furrow starter and that's one of the things that I know just more recently AgVice had an article out of the Northwood that they published talking about uh, this isn't the year to forget your starter which you know may be the case because with fallow syndrome one of the things that we know that um, what causes it is um, that there's symbiotic relationships between the roots and some fungi in the soil or mycorrhizae which help uh, particularly corn take up phosphorus zinc and also take up water and we notice um, in situations where the mycorrhizae isn't colonizing which is what we would call fallow syndrome or situations where there was nothing out there that was a host crop that previous year that the um, when we start seeing that the populations die back that there can be issues with phosphorus so the main thing with that is where we see problems would be following sugar beets. This can happen, obviously, following situations like we had last year where nothing was out there in the field. This could be a problem. And then also some cover crops, particularly brassicas, can induce fallow syndrome. Uh, the main question on management, really, though, is whether or not we can get enough fertilizer on with infrarrow applications. And I have some data. I was sent some pictures close to 10 years ago from out in the western part of the state um, where a grower had forgot to turn his starter on. And it was about a seven to 10 bushel yield differential. This was following sugar beets, uh, be a situation like we'd run into with fallow syndrome. So I think there's gonna be some situations out there where there might be some problems. I just, I don't think that just because we had some unplanted acres that all these acres are gonna need in furrow starter. And that's one of the things that um, I've had some difficulties in situations where I thought I'd get the problem getting it to show up. So it's not a given, but it is something to watch out for. And it is uh, particularly if we get into earlier plantings this year, which it looks like we may be able to, that uh, starter, uh, particularly looking at um, you know, five gallons of 1034 is still probably going to be a good option, maybe with a, a quart of chelated zinc. So it's one of the things to watch out for. And if you don't have that option, there's really not a whole lot you can do. So don't just, obvious, don't just go in and jack up your broadcast rate because that's really not going to help you out. It's really when we start talking about fallow syndrome, it really is a broadcast or a banded situation that's really going to help you out with this, and not a broadcast application. And so, Dan, you're you're not really talking about uh, really excessively increasing rates. I mean, two and a half to five gallons is pretty pretty typical for folks to be targeting, or or do you need to be closer to that five gallon rate? Well, you probably want to be closer to the five if you can do it, uh, if your soils allow it. Obviously, if you have coarser soils, I mean, no more than probably three, um, but I think I'm less concerned because those soils probably didn't have the issues like we'd have on, on some of those um, where we had um, unplanted acres. But, you know, the, some of the data, the older data would say that we can need upwards of about 40 units P205, which is, you know, you're looking at 10 gallons of 1034, which really you're getting into some safety issues at that point. So five gallons gives you the 20 units P205. Um, yeah, you're really not talking about increasing it as much. I just would not go out there and double your broadcast rate thinking you're going to fix this because it won't fix it. So you need a band application and really the, the most widely uh, used option we have right now is inferral starter. Um, if you have, um, you know, two by two with dry, 
then you could look at upping the rate because you can safely get that on. But the economics are completely different, and there's not a lot of people that still have that. But um, that's probably a better option if you have it. But um, infro, we're still going to be limited by the amount we can safely apply and not have some stand damage. So what other kind of questions are you getting right now uh, in relation to, to some of these issues that kind of developed last year and are carrying over now into, into management concerns for this crop year? Well, I was going to ask uh, some questions about nitrogen. I guess there's a number of different situations out there, obviously, assuming that we are uh, going uh, into corn this year. Uh, but there's the whole issue of the prevent planted acres, and uh, obviously a lot of those uh, were wetter acres, and there's going to be a higher potential for there have been uh, denitrification, and so potentially there's really not going to be a lot of carryover. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if a cover crop got planted, I guess there's questions relative to how successful that cover crop was, uh, as well as uh, what we might expect to see uh, for a, a nitrogen credit because of that. Uh, of course, sort of depending on what the cover crop was. Uh, but then also there's going to be some acres out there that uh, were intended to be planted to corn last year and a nitrogen application got in. It's probably not a lot of area. But uh, in those cases, then where the corn plant wasn't able to, the corn wasn't able to be planted, uh, can we uh, potentially expect or suspect that there will be some nitrogen left from that previous last year's application that we could credit for this uh, coming growing season? There's some interesting questions there, I know, Brad. I mean, just you know, one of the things that I did receive a question on a few weeks ago was looking at um, some of our crediting because we do suggest up to about a 75 pound nitrogen credit for corn following a fallow situation and, and a lot of where that credit comes from is mineralized in. I mean you're dealing with situations where you have nothing out there where nitrogen is still mineralizing because microbial activity is still occurring that um, then you may have some at the end of the season that might carry over from one year to the next. So the question really on that credit will be do you expect carryover? And with these soils being saturated as long as they were, I'd really have some doubts that we'd see that much of a direct nitrogen carryover. I mean, really the best way to handle this, if you're looking at options, would be to look at a two-foot end test because if indeed that credit is coming from mineralized end, it should show up as nitrate. And it should show up now. Um, if, obviously, if you've put fertilizer already on that, you're kind of missed the boat for that. But that would be probably the best option. I mean, as far as cover crops, there's a lot we really don't know. And um, also I mentioned in one of our recent articles talking about weeds, uh, because if there's anything out there with weeds, it would obviously lessen potentially the risk for fallow syndrome because it would be host, host species out there. But also with nitrogen cycling, there could be some things occurring there. Um, the issue though really is that recovery time. And when we look at a lot of our short-term recovery from some of our cover crop studies is we don't always see that nitrogen. We see a pretty fast decomposition of what's out there and that nitrogen just doesn't credit back. So it's going to be kind of a you know guessing game. I think if you're in a situation where you're in a continual cover crop system, there might be some benefit there. But if it was just, you know, we had something out there last year because we had to put something out there, I don't know if I'd really count on much of a credit. And that's kind of one of the, the questions is, you can look at rules of thumb, but I'd just be really careful because these wet soils we have, I would bet a lot of what we had, if we had nitrate there, I mean, we were pretty wet still in September that a lot of what would have been mineralized either wasn't or was denitrified. So we're going into a season where we could have, and we've seen, heard reports of pretty low residual nitrate levels. And I mean, I guess to me, the really the best way be is to get a soil sample out there right now, particularly if you're 
going to plant, maybe not, you don't have any nitrogen down, going to side dress anything, just maybe take a sample and just see where those residual levels are, because normally I would expect around a 30-pound carryover from corn following beans. Um, if it's higher than that, we'd likely have something we could credit, particularly from a fallow situation. If it's lower than that, I mean, there's likely going to be a little bit higher of an end requirement. So it's one of the, the things I think it's just a lot of unknowns right now, and it be nice to see more of a normal year just to see where things kind of end back up again because we've seen some situations where we've we've lost a substantial amount of nitrogen it's really capped off some of what can be mineralized well that summed it up pretty well dan uh, that was sort of my thought also i know uh ryan and i worked with a producer a few years ago uh doing some precision ag work uh, um, this was coming out of the the 2013 year when there was a lot of prevent plant and um, this guy had, had uh, tried to establish a cover crop. Um, it was a brassica, and I think he only got the thing uh, a half planted, and it was in a diagonal pattern across the field. And there was a huge yield difference where he had the, the cover crop planted versus where he didn't. I, I, it was something really large. I don't know, Ryan, if you remember, it was like 60 bushels or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was very, very large. But you know, it was hard to know whether that was a uh, fertility per issue or if it was a soil quality issue. I know we, we kind of figured it wasn't a fallow syndrome problem because uh, uh, brassica is not a host to, to that, those fungi, uh, but it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and it'd be kind of interesting to see what happens here um, because there are a lot of questions on, on some of that. And some of the recycling right now with the nitrogen, it's... We're just, I know my, I got a graduate student just finishing up and we just did some short term work looking at recycling from like cereal rye and um, Pennycrust is the other one we were looking at essentially and, and just seeing kind of what nitrogen recycling we have and we cannot find it. I mean, you looked at a lot of our, our field sites that the covers were decomposing rapidly. I mean, within about a month, most of the material, the easily decomposable stuff was gone and most of the nitrogen was gone with it and we weren't seeing a whole lot of recovery. So. I mean, it said, I don't know. Um, it's interesting, Brad, you kind of you know, mentioned those comments on it. You know, it'd be interesting this year, too, anybody that would have got established any tillage radishes to see kind of what would happen. Because it may have been a good year with some of those prevent acres to get something in there that could break up some of the compaction that we've got going on. Because that could be, I think, of a big benefit to some growers. You can't get anything planted to get something down there to try to break up some of these compaction issues that have that have come into play just because of some of the less than optimal conditions when we've been harvesting and just see if there's any benefit there, but I don't know on the nitrogen side, there's just a lot of question marks right now in terms of recycling. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. Now, one of the hats that I wear in my role as an educator, uh, uh, don't do as much of it as I maybe once did, but I, I do handle some drainage uh, questions, and I've been getting some calls here the, this last uh, year or two since it's been so wet, that farmers are reporting that the functionality of some of the drainage systems just isn't what it used to. There's a lot of places, low areas that have been ponding where the water used to go away and suddenly it's not, not going away. And there's kind of these questions about what to do to get the water running. And in a lot of cases, I think what we're finding is that because of the saturation, we've seen a co collapsed soil structure a loss of the pore space and therefore a greatly reduced hydraulic conductivity uh, that's not allowing the water to infiltrate through the soil and into the drain tile as quickly as it once did. And I think there's some opportunity in some of these places to potentially use a cover crop to 
restore functionality of the soil that, that uh, through the growth of that, uh, the root structure, uh, we could maybe reestablish some, some pore space in there and get the water uh, work running through there again. Yeah, uh, interesting, Brad. Um, and I think we kind of threw that idea out back when we were talking, that 2014 situation you mentioned earlier. I think uh, there was some potential that that, that might have been one of the underlying roles. Unfortunately, it wasn't in a controlled experiment, so you couldn't really see what the factor was. Um, it was not, but it was in the, some of those uh, stranger soils on the eastern side of Rice County. It's kind of a... A transition zone there we've got a, a lust cap that's maybe a, a foot deep uh, 18 inches in some places on top of a, a heavier till uh, those soils um, you don't see surface water or ponding in that area but that that boundary layer does uh, pose a fairly significant uh, um, barrier for water uh, infiltration through there and so consequently a lot of those soils or pretty much all the productive soils in that part of the the state are, are drain tiled. Uh, uh, doesn't really seem apparent when you look at the landscape. So uh, back to something uh, you mentioned earlier, Dan, or we had been talking with Lindsay uh, Pease about this with the 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 need for uh, additional nitrogen with uh, unharvested sugar beets and uh, trying to think of other scenarios where uh, if someone had a cover crop planted. Uh, are there scenarios where we might need to see a little bit more nitrogen uh, or adjust our rate upwards to just to be safe? Well, we did. We have increased our nitrogen racks the last couple of years. And I think some of that really is, if you look at corn following beans, it's, it's crept up a little bit. And some of this, I think, probably follows what we've been seeing with the lowering of the residual nitrate on it. So I think it kind of follows that we've gotten more denitrification. We're not carrying as much forward. And if we know that um, inorganic end, which includes the residual, is it, is um, an important part early in the growing season that not having that at the initial point, I think, is um, really going to be kind of important in terms of deciding what to do. So I think looking at, um, you know, our applications on the higher end probably of the recommended range is probably warranted at this point, just particularly if we're looking at wetter years with the lower of the residual nitrate carryover. With rye, I think it depends. And the issue that we've had with rye has been the termination time. And if you terminate it early enough, it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. But if you get enough biomass out there, we've seen circumstances where we've seen 50, 60 pounds more nitrogen needed following cereal rye, even though it took up uh, 60, 70, 80 pounds. It just it seems like it's immobilizing it more than anything else. So it's really knowing how to manage it. I mean, I know there's some growers out there that have got a pretty good handle on it, which it isn't as much of an issue just to make sure some of that's not going to occur. Because if you let it get too big, um, it starts getting too old. You start losing some of that, um, that C to N ratio starts to increase where it, um, you have more carbon to nitrogen uh, as, as the, the material ages. You know you're going to have more problems with tie-up with it. So I think that's the main thing just to watch with it. Um, and if anything was terminated last fall, I wouldn't be as worried because some of that decomposition would have kind of come into play with it and it would have utilized some of the nitrate that probably was going to be leached out the spring anyway. So it just depends on that termination time and how big it was. Uh, so just, just kind of watch with that. And that's one of the things that um, I'd like to see a little more clarity with some of these cover crop species um, with the nitrogen cycling, some of that the timing and that type of thing, just to get the best handle on that. Because we have had problems with it where it's taken more nitrogen consistently. You look at anything that's not an end fixer and even with medium red clover, 
we didn't get enough growth out of it really to give us any benefit back. So the majority of the work we've done with our just our really short-term studies that haven't been in place for a number of years where you might see benefit over time with just the cover, just in the short term, I think we'd be looking at probably maybe needing a little bit more in where it was, we had situations where it looked like corn following corn, essentially with um, corn following soybean with a rye cover crop in between. So if I'm looking at uh, terminating my rye cover crop at, uh, say, boot stage, is that is that kind of uh, getting a little too late and one of those situations where I might need to anticipate a little more uh, nitrogen need? That's one of where we were that, that late. We were seeing some problems, I think. Um, if you looked at it um, you know, before that, when the stuff is, I mean, I think it's similar to what we see with um, situations where we're trying to mitigate iron, iron chlorosis with oats. Um, that if you let it get beyond about 10 inches or so, we start getting into problems with, with water utilization. And certainly with corn, it's probably going to be the nitrogen aspect because that rye is taking up a lot of N at, at that point, or it's taken up a lot of N. So you're really trying to balance it where it takes up enough where it can mitigate some of the water quality, the, the potential loss issues, but then try to make sure that it's not tying too much up. And... Um, so that was the big thing. I think boot or later, you want to try to get into it earlier than that. So you just want to try to get it to just at, at when it's starting to maybe right before it's starting to form the head, just to try to get it get it taken out because um, it's been there long enough that it hopefully should take above as much nitrogen and, and not cause any issues. Well, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. I know uh, we've seen that in some of our trials, like over at the S-Rock, where there was cereal rye, and it actually required uh, more nitrogen the following year instead of actually receiving a credit. And, and realistically, I guess, thinking about it, with we look at where we're at climate-wise this year with with development and growth and development of a cover crop, it's going to be pretty limited because we're going to be prioritizing corn planting shortly. And, and you know, we've had minimal amount of growth uh potential you know this spring with how cold it's been this last week uh and down in the single digits in southern minnesota or southeast minnesota so uh again you know i you're probably going to be you're probably right on we're probably going to be terminating that cover uh well ahead of it being very large so well, i think that's right uh, i haven't uh, obviously under the circumstance I haven't had a chance to travel real extensively so i haven't been into the parts of the state where there was uh a lot of uh, prevent plant acres, but I know like in my own area, uh, some of the places where cover crops were planted, I haven't seen uh, just a whole lot of growth. And uh, with kind of where we're sitting at right now with uh, field work progressing uh, rapidly now and looking into the long-term forecast, uh, it appears as though uh, planting conditions and, and weather conditions are going to be fairly normal. And I would expect to see a, a lot of field work getting done over the next couple of weeks. And so I don't think we're going to be into situations where that cover crop uh, gets uh, excessively large and then poses a lot of management challenges. Well, thanks, Dan, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. 